Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Mm. Enough of the music. Well, hello. Good talk. Good morning. It's the Two Tongues Podcast. With only one tongue coming at you today, a little bit unexpectedly. So, uh, the other tongue is sick. Um, the whole the whole household here, a little bit the last few days, and apparently the other tongue's household as well. Um, he's doing a little bit worse for the wear, and I'm feeling good enough to give this a go. But here's the thing, you guys. What I had planned to talk about today, I thought would be kind of ideal for a Kyle and I episode. Um, how it's going to go without Kyle is anybody's guess. So I'll give it, a, I'll give it my best shot. Um, it's kind of interesting how these things work because um, it, it always seems a little bit serendipitous to me trying to prepare for these episodes because it seems like what I'm exposed to, whether it be just something I'm reading, something on the news, you know, something popped up in my feed, um, you know, there are moments where the topics will converge and I'll have things that kind of stack up, unrelated things that kind of stack up together. And I'm like, oh yeah, let's package these together for a podcast. This is going to work out. So this is kind of what happened this time. And, uh, it started with, I started with this, it started with a book that I got for my birthday, um, which was partially written by Jordan Peterson. And, you know, you know, I don't have to tell you guys, uh, I'm a fan. So, so somebody bought this for me and it turns out it's, um, not a book. It's actually a, a speech that was given. And I guess more correctly, it was a debate that was given between a number of people. So rather than being a book written by four authors, it's actually a debate with four people, including Jordan Peterson. And this was done, uh, something in Canada that's called the Monk Debate. I don't know much about it. Uh, I did listen to, uh, watch the video once upon a time on YouTube and actually heard this conversation and saw it live. But now I've read through the conversation uh, transcript, basically is what the book is. It's called Political Correctness Gone Mad. And uh, two of the people are arguing, uh, Stephen Fry and Jordan Peterson, are arguing kind of from the conservative side. And uh, two other people, um, a professor named uh, Michael Eric Dyson and Michelle Goldberg, are arguing the other, the other side, the more liberal side of the argument. And it's an interesting conversation. So that, that book coming down was one piece of the puzzle. The other piece was something that uh, Kyle and I talked about on the podcast a couple times, but once recently, um, just to refresh your memory, a story that I tell about um, spending many years in college and uh, one class in particular that was, you might say, was teaching students how to think for themselves. 
you know, one class out of all of them that I, that I took. And that class was called Logic. And I, I explained to you before, I needed a math credit. It counted as a math credit. It's a philosophy class. I was like, oh, shit. And I'm a fan of philosophy anyway. So let's kill two birds with one stone. Let me, let me get this math credit out of the way. Take this class called Logic. It was an elective. It was one of my favorite classes in college, hands down, bar none. <clears throat> and <clears throat> what we were doing in the class was, forgive me for clearing my throat, you guys. I'm also a little under the weather. <clears throat> um, but uh, but more dedicated to Kyle, because guess who's on the podcast? Kyle. All right, so um, just kidding. I love you, buddy. Feel better. Um, so the, so this class, Logic, what it did was it uh, it taught us how to look at arguments people were making which is really simple. And if, you, if you've never, never done it before, this is all going to sound pretty self-explanatory, pretty obvious. But the thing is, it's not obvious. People get, people get convinced by bad arguments all the time. And logic, this class was designed to show you where the logic was going wrong. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was neat. It was like, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about all these types of fallacies, these are, these are called logical fallacies. These are things that trip people up or things that are used to manipulate people, things that you might hear from an attorney making an argument, things you might hear from a politician, <clears throat> things you, you would hear from somebody trying to lie to you or persuade you, maybe even against your will, because they're so effective, these tactics. They're so effective in convincing you by using your emotions or using your psychology against you that you can convince people of things um, without a whole lot of effort, actually, without doing a lot of hard work, actually. And the people who spend time to make uh, really detailed arguments, really cogent arguments, th- those people, um, oftentimes their arguments fall uh, on deaf ears because they're burdensome, because they're difficult to listen to, because there's, you know, there's logic you have to follow. Um, oh, isn't it just much more easy to kind of get a rise out of somebody and make them angry than, than you're, they're on your side? Isn't that a little easier? So it's, that's the kind of shit that this class was pointing out and all these different logical fallacies. And we, we did that by looking at like mostly newspaper articles or magazine articles or something. And we're going to, for the class, we'd sit there, we'd read these passages, and then we'd, we'd point out the fallacies where they were. And so the idea is you can read the argument. Um, you, or you can hear the argument, and it, it can be effective, and it can persuade you, it can convince you. And you go back and you just think about it a little bit more critically, and you're like, okay, well, he said this and that, and that shit doesn't really make sense, and that was a leap, and this and that. Next thing you know, the argument you were convinced by, now that you've taken it apart, you realize was weak, and you got taken in by it. And so that's that's the value of the class. It's, it's showing you how easily you can be taken in, and the types of things that people use... Uh, logically to get you, you know, to get you for lack of a better word. And having Kyle on this uh, episode would have been that much better just to talk about all the ways that that happens politically. Cause I think he would be the first one to, to have some, some words to say. All right. So, <clears throat> so I want to do this. I want to do this using the debate political, political correctness gone mad, that monk debate. Um, but I also want to show something that just came across uh, my Twitter feed not long ago that Michael Malice posted, which is a CNN interview clip with Don Lemon. Um, and I, I want to save it to the end because it's, you know, it's recent. You know, it's something that's like, you know, it's, it's not like we're talking about something that happened a long time ago. We're talking about a conversation that's relevant today. And you can see so, so clearly it, it's chock full of these logical fallacies, this manipulation. 
so I, I just wanted to, I mean, it's so bad. And thank you, Michael Malice, for, for sharing it. It's so bad that it's like, I don't even know where to begin with it. And it's only a couple minutes long. So we'll get there. Before I do, I want to, I want to talk about some of these logical fallacies. I want to try. You know, I didn't do a great deal of prep here, and it's been many, many years since I've taken the class, so you will forgive me, but I'm going to do my best. So there's like a bunch of them. If you Google logical fallacies, you can see there's lists. A lot of them kind of overlap one another. I, I think I saw one that said there were 24, but maybe there are more. I'm going to talk about a couple, though. All right, so there's something called uh, appeal to authority. Appeal to authority. And I, it's hard to not frame this in a, a political way, but you can imagine with a COVID debate uh, going on. And there's people obviously on both sides that agree and that disagree. But you get an authority. So in this case, somebody like Dr. Fauci, you put him on the news, you say, this is the top doctor. This is the, this is the president's guy. This is the top doctor in the country. And he's telling you X, Y, and Z. Right? So there's no reason to explain why X, Y, and Z should be done. Because X, Y, and Z is coming from the mouth of the authority. So we can get convinced without even an argument, or even a good argument, or even no argument at all, just because somebody who's positioned as an authority comes out and says X, Y, and Z. It's the same reason why all of those, um, all of those infomercials you see about, uh, you know, about... Um, pharmaceutical drugs or even about like like those law firm commercials about malpractice suits or whatever and you see the people talking on the infomercials and they're wearing white coats even though they're fucking actors why because it's presents them as a doctor as an authority and I'm more likely to believe you whatever's coming out of your mouth because you have a white coat on. That's the kind of, kind of manipulation I'm talking about when I say look for those things. Appeal to authority. So are we really making an argument? Are we really supporting an argument? Or are we just pointing to somebody who looks like they know what they're talking about and saying, well, that, per that smart person thinks it, so must be true. All right, so there's another one called a false equivalency. Uh, you may have heard this one. I've, I've heard it tossed around in some interviews. Um, Stop coddling oh, people. Th there we go. That's, that's the uh, clip that I want to play for you a little bit later. The false equivalency... Um, I just Googled it. They give an example that's silly, but I'll, I'll read it to you because I can't come up with one on my own. He's like, here's a simple example of false equivalency, saying something like a knife and dynamite are both tools that can be used as weapons. So they're pretty much the same thing, right? So that's a silly, a silly argument, but a false equivalency where you might say, I don't have to really make, I don't have to defend my position, right? All I have to do is pretend that I'm talking about something else that's close enough that people will go with me, right? So I don't have to say Donald Trump is terrible. I just have to say Donald Trump's like Hitler. We all know Hitler's terrible, right? So Donald Trump's like Hitler, like that kind of argument, something like that. False equivalency. All right, then there's, this is the, uh, this is the, uh, the go-to, the ever, ever popular go-to uh, ad hominem, ad hominem. It means attack the man, attack the man instead of the argument. Attack the person making the argument. So there's a very famous one that I've used before, but I can't take credit. It comes from Nietzsche. And Nietzsche talks about uh, the philosophy of Socrates. He has a, um, you know, we see that, we actually talked about that from Plato. So the, the philosophy we know about from Socrates actually comes from the writings of Plato. And uh, Nietzsche had some disagreements with Plato. 
And he said, well, I'm going to throw a wrench in all Plato and Socrates' arguments by saying Socrates was ugly. So that's an ad hominem. So I don't have to believe that there's this world of forms that Plato talks about, that there's this ideal you know, es world of essences that, that's behind our perceptions. Uh, I don't have to believe that. That, that, you know, if I'm, if I'm Nietzsche, I don't have to believe that because the person who came up with that idea was an ugly person. Now, historically, there's, there's reason to believe Socrates wasn't an attractive human being. Nietzsche points that out to throw all of his philosophy under the bus because somebody who is ugly probably didn't, uh, doesn't place a lot of value in appearances. Isn't that somebody who might be likely to say, appearances aren't real. There, there's really this other supernatural world of forms. Appearances really aren't important. Yeah, you would say that, Socrates. You would say that, right? So I don't have to take any of Socrates' arguments seriously. I just point out he's ugly. That's an ad hominem. Attack the man, right? I don't want to have to bring up Donald Trump again, but fucking everything that guy said didn't matter. Didn't matter, right? Just attack the man. Policies be damned. Didn't matter. Orange man bad. Doesn't matter what he says. Good ideas or not. Orange man bad. Ad hominem, guys. All right, circular reasoning. This is another one. This is, you know, it's hard to explain. It kind of says it already. Circular reasoning. It's where you, you're trying to make an argument, but in doing it, all you're doing is restating the proposition. You're just restating the argument. You're saying it in a different way. And you do that five or six times, and it seems like you've got all this evidence for your argument, and all you're doing is just making the same argument over and over and over again. There's nothing to it. It just seems like there is. Circular reasoning. And that's c connected to another fallacy that you've probably heard of, uh, something called begging the question. You're just going to continue to repeat the same thing in different ways, and it seems like it's strengthening your argument, but it is not. All right. Appeal to ignorance. So there's a whole bunch of these appeals, and I want to give. You, I want to just point out when you see that, you should read manipulation because that's what that means, to appeal to somebody's ignorance, um, and that that's the idea of this is. We've talked about this before, but this is a really obvious example. Um, you can manipulate people's ignorance. It's easy to do. Why? Because people don't like to admit that they're ignorant or that they don't know. I am the first person to be guilty of this. And I struggle with it and I try to work on it. But people do not like to, to not know, especially if they're being asked a question, if, especially if they're supposed to know, you know, or if it affects their ego or something, which, you know, maybe that's my problem. Um, the idea here is this. If people don't know, you can get them to agree with you by sounding smart. You've seen this a million times in interviews. You say you use big words. You say something you you. You quote somebody else, you, you, you quote statistics, you, you know, whatever. You say, so you talk over somebody's head or you say something like it's certain. And what you do is you put pressure on the person who doesn't know, on the other side of this argument, who doesn't know if you're right. You put pressure on them to, to agree with you so that they don't have to admit that they don't know because it puts them in this weak position, right? So appeal to ignorance. This is the same thing politicians do. It's the same thing that, um, that professionals of all sorts do, like attorneys and accountants and actuaries and people who use big fancy terms and words um, that normal people don't use and don't know uh, because, it makes, because it, it makes them superior. It, it gives them the perception of having important information that you don't have. And again, people don't want to look 
dumb. They don't want to think they're dumb. They'd rather assume they know something they don't know because it's better for their ego, right? So appeal to ignorance. That's one way of manipulating people. One way of making you concede an argument when nobody's done anything to really convince you. Here's another, another one. Appeal to emotion. This is a fucking good one, you guys. Because what happens when we get emotional? You know what happens. We act in ways that are unpredictable. We can't even predict them. You get angry, you know, you get jealous, you get, you know, your feelings hurt. You're, you're likely to lash out. You don't even know how you're going to re- respond to that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably not going to be good. Um, so you appeal to somebody's emotions. And you can think about this from all sorts of pers- perspectives. In fact, the best one that comes to my mind. Um, in fact, this appeal to emotion and the next one appeal to pity. These are going to go hand in hand. You can think about this politically from anything that's anything that's a social argument, anything that's about a social good. So in, anytime there's guilt involved with a political message about the downtrodden, about the poor, about the, um, about the um, oppressed, that's an appeal to your emotion or an appeal to your pity. It's if you were a good person, you would agree with me, right? Let's spend a hundred trillion dollars to solve the the homelessness crisis and to solve the you know HIV crisis or whatever it is, whatever it is. Let's spend all this money and do all of these things to solve these problems. These poor people are desperately need our help. Let's do that. Who wouldn't agree with that? You must be an asshole. You must be conservative, right? Um, we, because we don't have to consider the argument, right? We don't have to consider the fact that it's going to cost how much, and what's that going to do to inflation? It's, it's going to cost how much? And where's that money going to come from? We're going to tax who for it? We're going to increase the prices of what now? How, how are we going to pay for this great thing that you want to do? Oh, no, no, we don't have to talk about that. Why? Because we're, because we're appealing to your emotion, right? Don't you want to be a good person? Don't you want to be kind and take care of people? Don't you recognize this is a problem? There are poor people. There are hungry people. There are starving. There's, there's children that are cold and dying in Africa. You son of a bitch. So how am I, how am I going to even listen to any other part of that argument? Because the appeal to emotion and pity is so strong that anything I have to say, even just to ask a question, let's 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 look under the hood here. Let's how is this going to work in practice? What do we need to accomplish this? No, we can't ask those questions because if you ask them, you're a dick. Now, I don't want to I don't want to point necessarily fingers at one part of the one side of the aisle here, but who's the worst at that? The people that are in charge of mainstream media, uh, that's, that's basically one party. You motherfuckers are the worst at that. <clears throat> you know who I'm talking about. Um, but politics aside, let me give you another example. Appeal to emotion or appeal to pity. Um, think about something like the Wounded Warrior Project commercials you see. Um, think about something like the Sarah McLachlan, uh, you know, cat with one eye commercial that you see for the Humane Society or whatever it is. Uh, with that, with that music, um, with that country, that fucking country music playing in the background, uh, appeal to emotion. Of course, I'm not saying those are bad causes. They pull on our heartstrings for a reason because they are legitimate causes. But what we're trying to do is extract money from you. What we're trying to do is to get you to pick up the phone and and, and give us some money. We're manipulating you with appeals to emotion and appeals to pity. It has nothing to do with making an argument. It has nothing to do with convincing you of what's right and wrong. It has to do with pulling on your heartstrings so that in a moment of emotion, when you're not acting logically, you will do what they want you to do. That is what it is, you guys. 
All right, so there's something uh, coming up here. It's called a red herring. Maybe you've heard of this, a red herring. We use that in all sorts of uh, contexts, so maybe this one is not as obscure. But this is a diversionary tactic. It's, it's about basically choosing to argue something else rather than the actual argument. So it would be like uh, talking about balancing the budget. And one side of the arguments uh, says, you know, well, what's about climate change? It's a big problem, and, you know, the budget be damned. If we don't solve this problem, we're all going to die. Now, suddenly, we're not arguing about the budget anymore, right? Now we're arguing about the fucking apocalypse. This is, this is what's happened, a red herring. We're having the conversation. We're trying to get from point A to point B. We're trying to have this debate. You take us off the motherfucking rails talking about climate change and the apocalypse, and now we're not having that conversation anymore. And nobody fucking notices. Nobody notices. Because our emotions just take us right along. Nobody cares about logic anymore. Just right around that, that, that emotional roller coaster ride. Fucking see ya. We're going down this road now. Um, there's also a slippery slope argument. Um, this one's just terrific. You guys know about this one from Too Big to Fail, uh, you know, from, from a few years back. Slippery slope argue, argument is arguing this. Hey, it doesn't matter what the argument is on either side of the of the uh, 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 debate because if side B happens, then it, it, it's going to be catastrophic. It's going to be the end of the world. If if B happens, then we're all fucked. So we have to do A. We have to do A. Same same exact debate I just brought up with cl- uh, you know climate change. Talking about you know fiscal policy, talking about money, talking about balancing the budget. Somebody brings up we're not spending enough on climate change, and if we don't if, if we don't do that, the world's going to end. So now we're having a climate change discussion instead of a balanced budget discussion. Um, it's the it's pulling that catastrophic uh, lever. It's saying this will be the end of the world. This will be. Um, you know the uh, the collapse of the economy. This will be the um, the um, demographic explosion. You know, too many people being born. We can't feed everybody. You know, whatever it is, what the fuck ever it is, gloom and doom that's coming. The slippery slope argument is designed to quash the debate. We can't have this conversation. We can't think out any of these thoughts or ideas, pros and cons. We're not making a list, you guys, because one potential. Potentiality is catastrophic, so at all costs, we have to avoid that. End of argument. And then the ever-popular straw man. Straw man argument. So I make a very compelling argument, very well thought out, very well researched, all that sort of thing. Um, You know, supporting argument on top of supporting argument, building this great, this great fortress of, of, uh, you know, uh, of an argument. The straw man is, is basically somebody who comes in and says, okay, I'm going to oversimplify your argument. I'm going to make it sound like a soundbite. I'm going to make it sound silly, and then I'm going to dismiss it. Best way of doing that today, take any good argument you want, call it racist, call it sexist, call it homophobic, call it uh, you know whatever you want, and dismiss it. Dismiss it. Doesn't matter if it's good a good argument. Doesn't matter. Dismiss it. Straw man, guys. All right, so these are all, there's, there's, there are others, but these are the ones that I wanted to bring to your attention. These are the ones that you'll see all the time. You see it in advertising and marketing. You see it in politics. You see it in arguments that attorneys are making. You see it, you see it in commercials. You see it everywhere. Um, you see it in arguments you have uh, at Thanksgiving dinner with your Uncle John. You see it, you see it everywhere. Um, I point that out because... 
you see what I mean. Those arguments are effective. If you try to think of examples, you can see where you become persuaded by them. And what people don't realize is that the actual arguments go out the window. So we're not ever getting anywhere. This is why these arguments are perennial. This is why we're still arguing about this shit. Because nobody ever comes to an agreement. Nobody ever compromises. Because we're never, we're never going far enough down the debate to settle anything. We're getting distracted and manipulated all sorts of ways. Because it's so much easier to do that than, than to convince somebody of an actual piece of, 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 of argument. Right? It's, it's so much easier. And what comes to my mind is this. Um, we talked about this before, but I, I grew up, at least when I was very young, in a, in a, in a rough, rough, you know, city um, school, you know, a, a part of town that was, you know, it was, it was rough. Fights were not uncommon. And, uh, and I, I've seen so many of these arguments, you know, whatever, middle school age kids or high school age kids. Um, you know, they, ha- they have a beef with one another. They have some disagreement, whatever, you know. You can imagine a bazillion of examples of how that stuff goes down. But where you end up with a group of people surrounding two people arguing, maybe they're getting ready to fight. Everyone just wants to see if it's going to escalate to the point where somebody swings on another another person. Is it really going to get violent? We're all standing around watching. And the arguments, it's, you know, you did this, you did that, whatever. Maybe it's about a it's about a girl. It's always about a girl. And, uh, and uh, one of them says something like, you know, whatever. Um, you know, your your mama's so fat joke or something, whatever. It's something to take the, to shift the tide of the crowd's opinion onto your side. You guys know what I mean. Um, It's just that sharp-tongued insult. It's that, you know, clever quip. It's whatever it is. Um, It's not about whatever they're arguing about. It's about getting the people on their side, and this is how that goes. A thousand kids in the background going, oh, you guys know what I'm talking about. And then that, that noise becomes a deafening cloud, and it hovers over, over the, the, the fight. And that's usually what ratchets up the, you know, the, uh, the bad decisions and, and get, people, get people dropping F-bombs and then dropping fists. Um, but that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's not settling anything. It's manipulating the crowd, it's, manip- it's the crowd manipulating the people, um, and it's pulling their heartstrings, their emotions, getting them, getting them to feel like they have a bruised ego. It's so interesting as an adult to remember or, you know, uh, try to put yourself back in that situation as an observer. That, that's what I mean. Um, and we wonder why nobody, why, why none of these arguments are solved. <laughs> okay, so, all right, here we go. Enough chit-chat. We've done, we've done some of this... Uh, definition stuff. So now I want to read this to you. Um, I'm not going to read everything to you. And remember, there are four people in the debate. I want to focus on basically two of them. Um, my boy, Jordan Peterson, because Jordan is of the three or of the four people that are that are speaking. Jordan Peterson is the one that speaks the most carefully. He's the um, he is the, you know, the most seasoned academic. He's the one that um, that definitions of words are in precision are very important because of his philosophy and psychology. So he speaks very, very, very carefully. Um, his arguments are very, very well thought out. So you've got that type of person on one side. And then the person that he debates with most and the most heated is uh, Michael Eric Dyson. And he's just happens to be um, the most progressive one. So he's also uh, a black guy. 
He's also very well educated. He's an Ivy League college professor. Um, he's on the other side of the ideological aisle. He's um, he's one of the people that uh, Jordan Peterson would categorize with lots of people that he doesn't like historically. You know, a lot of these totalitarian communist people um, that he has problems with because Michael Eric Dyson is a um, he's a critical theorist. He's one of those guys that um, uh, that that you know, the critical race theory is, is obviously a hot topic now. So he's one of the type of people that's, that talks about deconstruction. He's one of these people that is on the philosophical um, left, uh, polar opposite to Jordan Peterson, the collectivist type of person, very, very sympathetic to communism um, and socialism and that sort of thing. Um, so that's why, and, and also because he, he's a, a preacher, so Michael Michael Dyson has a way of speaking that is, if you, okay, I don't I don't want to be derogatory unnecessarily, but if you put put yourself in the in the perspective of a preacher on a pulpit, you understand you're entertaining and you're manipulating people. You're manipulating them to be better people. You're manipulating them to be, you know, introspective about their lives and to recognize when they're being sinful and to recognize the value in salvation. Right? That's what you're doing as a preacher. You're absolutely entertaining people you got to keep their attention you got to got to get them to hear the message and manipulating them and so you can think about like people like Jesse Jackson and Reverend Wright and the way they speak um you know even uh, to a lesser degree um uh preachers like um, Martin Luther King where, where it just comes down to the cadence of the speech and uh, how attractive that is in drawing your attention there's a different way of speaking when you're trying to manipulate people um, and I don't know if that's not exactly the kindest word to use to describe a preacher, but you know what I mean. And the difference between an academic like Jordan Peterson and this preacher, um, also an academic, um, Michael Eric Dyson, is polar opposite. So it illustrates this point, I think, really, really well. So without further ado, uh, let's see. <clears throat> Where do I want to begin here? All right, so, so these monk debates, they're... Um, I guess that, you know, they've happened historically, I don't know how many times, it seems like a big deal in Canada, um, this type of a thing where you have people on TV debating, like, you know, intellectual ideas, that's not something that you, you don't see that happening anymore. But it did used to happen, even even in this country, you know, even in the, in the United States, uh, Gore Vidal uh, had a debate with, a uh, series of debates with, um, oh, damn, I can't think of the conservative guy's name, uh, we talked about it before. Anyway, um, that, I think that was in the 70s or 80s. So it, it, it's not unheard of, but it's just not something that happens very much anymore. In any case, there's opening remarks. Each person gets a chance to uh, say their piece. They, they know what they're going to be talking about. In this case, it's political correctness is going to be the topic. And here we are. So this, this debate happened in May in 2018 uh, in Toronto, Canada. And let's see. I'm sorry about all the page flipping. Here we go. So Michelle Goldberg opens up after... No, these are her opening remarks. Here we go. So Michelle Goldberg, I'm just going to skip to this bit. She says, In the New York Times today, Mr. Peterson is quoted as saying, The people who hold that our culture is an oppressive patriarchy. They don't want to admit that the current hierarchy might be predicated on competence. So that's Jordan's quote. She says, That's not particularly insane to me because I'm an American and our president is Donald Trump. But it's an assumption that I, I think underlies a worldview in which any challenges to the current hierarchy are written off as political correctness. I also think we should be clear that this isn't really a debate about free speech. Mr. Peterson once referred to what he called 
quote, the evil trinity of equity, diversity, and inclusivity, unquote, and said, quote, those three words, if you hear people mouth those three words, equity, diversity, and inclusivity, you know that they're dealing, you know who you're dealing with, and you should step away from that because it's not acceptable, unquote. He argues that the movie Frozen is politically correct propaganda, and at one point he floated the idea of creating a database of university course content so students could avoid postmodern critical theory. So that postmodern critical theory is exactly what um, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, uh, the type, the, the you know that that's that's what he's teaching. So we'll talk more about that. All right. So 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 Goldberg goes on. She says the effort to expand rights and privileges once granted to just land owning white heterosexual men is the Enlightenment or it's very much in keeping with the Enlightenment. To quote a dead white man, John Stuart Mill, quote, the despotism of custom is everywhere the standard, the standing hindrance of human advancement. Excuse me. She goes on to say, to quote Mr. Mr. Peterson again, each gender, each sex, has its own unfairness to deal with. But to think of it as a consequence of the social structure, come on, really? What about nature itself? But there's an exception to this, because he does believe in social interventions to remedy some kinds of unfairness, which is why in the New York Times he calls for the enforced monogamy to remedy the woes of men who don't get their equal distribution of sex, unquote. Woo! All right. Almost done. She says, it's worth, it's worth looking back at what was considered an annoyingly, outrageously politically correct in the 1980s. The last time we had this debate, you know, not being able to call indigenous people Indians— or having to use hyphenated terms, at least in the United States, terms like African-American. You know, adding women or people of color to a Western civilization curriculum, or not making gay jokes, or using retard as an epithet. I get it. New concepts, new words stick in your throat. The way we're used to talking and thinking seems natural and normal by definition. And then the new terms, new concepts that have social utility stick, and those that don't fall away. If you go back to the 1970s, miss, you know, MS, as an alternative to miss or missus, stuck around, and women, with a Y, didn't. And I hope that someday we'll look back and marvel at the idea that gender-neutral pronouns ever seemed like an existential threat to anyone. And then lastly, she says, if you look around the world right now, there are plenty of places that have indeed dialed back cosmopolitanism and reinstated patriarchy in the name of staving off chaos. And they seem like terrible places to live. Okay. All right, so I didn't read her entire opening argument, but I just highlighted for you some things. And uh, I don't know if you picked up on any fallacies as we're going through this, but this is her kind of opening remarks, making the argument that she's going to make or or laying it out. And there's a couple of things, uh, a couple of things that stick out to me. Um, I mean, here towards the end when she's saying that... um, She's saying that, look, you know, there's progress in, in, in the way that we speak. We don't use the word Indian anymore. Or we don't use the word retard as an epithet anymore. And these things are, are all progress, and they're all good. And, you know, it, with, after enough time passes, we're all going to realize that, that it's good. Um, and, and she has this thing here where she says, and then the new terms, new concepts that have social utility stick and those that don't fall away. And that's why we still use the, the abbreviation Ms., but we don't use women with a Y. Okay, so, so this is a little bit of a misdirection, um, because she says here, new concepts that have social utility, but she doesn't define what that means. 
right? What does that mean, social utility? Utility means some kind of usefulness or good. So these words or concepts that have some sort of usefulness or good for society, like Ms. Okay, what kind of useful good does a new abbreviation for an unmarried woman have for society, exactly? So powerful, in fact, that it's stuck. We use it as a convention now. So it must have had some, some good, some social utility. What was that, Ms. Goldberg? Exactly. Uh, the other thing is, who gets to decide what's a social good? So Ms. Goldberg here is saying these new ideas that we call politically correct, you know, they didn't exist before. They're new ideas, they're new words, they're new concepts. And if they stick, it's because they have a used utility. Who gets to choose what has a social good and not? It doesn't seem to be society exactly. And how do you define a social good? Who gets to define good or progress? Come on, man. But you can say social utility. It's a nice word. It sounds good. Everyone kind of understands what it means. But, but if, you, if you accept it, if you don't question it, if you just let her say that, then she's, she, then she's defined um, these new political correct ideas that she's referring to as having a social good. And she sort of gets to be the person to say that. It's her, it's her, her judgment that it's a social good. It's interesting. Uh, and that's not to mention that um, some of the things that she said about Jordan Peterson so far are completely out of context and untrue, um, you know. But it's definitely a bit of a a bit of a Jordan Peterson bashing opening. And so then you might remember when you're trying to make an argument, if you see an ad hominem, if you see that she's bashing the person and not the idea, that should be a red flag for you. That should be, hey, you're being manipulated here. Um, and her entire opening dialogue was bashing Jordan Peterson. So that's, that's something to keep in mind. Let's see how Jordan responds. So it's his turn next, and he says, Hello, so we should first decide what we're talking about. We're not talking about my views on political correctness, despite what you might have inferred from the last speaker's comments. So you notice, Jordan Peterson notices that it's an ad hominem right away, and his first sentence is, Okay, guys, notice that Ms. Goldberg is trying to make this about me and paint me out to be a villain, and so we can't take anything I say seriously. But that's not what the fuck we're talking about. Amazing. He says, this is how it looks to me. We essentially need something approximating a low-resolution res grand narrative to unite us. And we need a narrative to unite us because otherwise we don't have peace. What's playing out in the universities and in broader society right now is a debate between two fundamental low-resolution narratives, neither of which can be completely accurate because they can't encompass all the details. Obviously, human beings have an, ind an individual element and a collective element, a group element, let's say. The question is, what story should be paramount? This is how it looks to me. In the West, we have reasonably functional, reasonably free, reasonably productive, stable hierarchies that are open to consideration of the dispossessed that hierarchies generally create. Our societies are, are freer and functioning more effectively than any societies anywhere else in the world and than any societies ever have. As far as I'm concerned, and I think there's good reason to assume this, it is because the fundamental low-resolution grand narrative that we're, we've oriented ourselves around in the West is one of the sovereignty of the individual. And it's predicated on the idea that all things considered, the best way for me to interact with somebody else is individual to individual. All right, so I'm going to stop there for a second. I want to point out that he says a couple interesting things that... Ms. Goldberg didn't do, and and uh, and Mr. Dyson won't do as well. 
um, he, he points out that there are two arguments, not just Jordan's argument. He points out that there are two. There's an individualist type of argument, and there's a collectivist type argument. And then he says, also, he says neither of them can be completely accurate. So he admits that even if he, at some point, decides he's on one side or the other, he wants the person listening to know that neither of these arguments are actually totally accurate because they can't encompass all the details. Um, okay. All right, so then he also points out something here. Nobody's brought up hierarchies yet, but Jordan brings it up, and he says, look, our, co our country works well. It, it, it's structured in a hierarchy, and I know that my, the people who are arguing with me are going to have something to say about it. What I, what I want to point out to everybody is that um, even with these hierarchies where we know people stack up at the bottom and there's fewer people at the top, our, our systems seem to be working pretty well, at least as well as any we've ever seen, and it does have considerations for the dispossessed. He says, he says, we have a stable hierarchy that's open to consideration of the dispossessed. We have already a mind to take care of people that are stacking up at the bottom of the hierarchy. We have social programs. We have, you know, uh, charities. We have kindness towards one another. Um, that, that stuff already exists. Okay. And then, he, and then he, he goes on to say, the reason we're valuable as individuals, both with regard to our rights and our responsibilities, is, is that our is because that's our essential purpose and that's our function. So the, the function of an individual is to be an individual, not to be a part of a group. <laughs> Please, that's what he's pointing out. What's happening as far as I'm concerned in the universities is particularly, excuse me, in the universities in particular and spreading very rapidly out into the broader world, including the corporate world, um, much to what should be its chagrin, is a collectivist narrative. And of course, there's some utility in the collectivist narrative because we're all part of groups in different ways. But the collectivist narratives that I regard as politically correct is a strange uh, pistache of postmodern and neo-Marxism. I don't know what that word is, I just read. And its fundamental claim is that, no, you're not essentially an individual, you're essentially the member of a group. Okay, so now he's, now he's dividing this out. He's like, look, I believe we're all individuals, and the best way for us to interact is individual to individual, and maybe that's really the only way we can interact. What the, what the other people on this argument are going to say is that, no, individuals you know, interacting with each other, that, that's minor. It's about the group you belong to and how the groups interact with each other. Okay, so that's the other part of the argument. He says the group might be your ethnicity, it might be your sex, it might be your race, it might be any of the endless number of other potential groups that you belong to because you belong to many and that you should be essentially categorized along with those who are like you. That's proposition number one. Proposition number two is that the proper way to view the world is as a battleground between groups of different power. You view the battleground, excuse me, you view the, the battle between groups from the group context and you view history itself as a consequence of nothing but the power of maneuvers between different groups. That eliminates any consideration of the individual at a very fundamental level and also any idea of free speech. So this is interesting. This is saying, look, if what you think the important um, interactions are are between groups and, and, and how we harness power over one another, and that's the overarching narrative, that's what history is about, that's what culture is about, that's what war is about, if that's really what's important, then there's no room left for the individual. You know, it's it's about the colony and not about the individual ants that you and I are. And that's the perspective that he's painting for this collectivist group uh, that he's, you know, distancing himself from. He's putting himself on the other side of the spectrum. 
All right, he says, but for the radical left type of collectivist, that's associated with this viewpoint of political correctness. When you speak, all you're doing is playing a power game on behalf of your group, and there's nothing else that you can do because that's all there is. So this is the way he's painting this collectivist radical left view, the one that he's saying is associated with political correctness, which is supposed to be the topic of the debate. All right, he goes on, he says, For example, it's widely assumed in our universities now that the best way to conceptualize Western civilization is as an oppressive, male-dominated patriarchy, and that the best way to construe relationships between men and women across the centuries is one of oppression of women by men. No hierarchy is without its tyranny. That's an axiomatic truth. People have recognized that for thousands of years, and hierarchies do tend towards tyranny, and they do tend towards usurpation by people with power, but that only happens when they become corrupt. We have mechanisms in our society to stop hierarchies from becoming intolerably corrupt, and they actually work pretty well. I would also point this out. Don't be thinking that this is a debate about whether empathy is useful or not, or that the people on the con side of the argument are not empathetic. I know perfectly well that hierarchies tend to produce situations where people stack up at the bottom, and that they dispossess in hierarchies, uh, and that the dispossessed in hierarchies need a polite, excuse me, a political voice, which is the proper necessary voice of the left. But that is not the same as proclaiming that the right level of analysis for our grand unifying narrative is that all of us are fundamentally to be identified by the groups we belong to, and to construe the entire world as the battleground between different forms of tyranny as a consequence of that group affiliation. And to the degree that we play out the narratives that, that won't be uh, progress, believe me, and we certainly haven't seen that progress in the universities. What we'll return to is exactly the same kind of tribalism that characterizes the left. Thank you. So that's Jordan's opening line, uh, opening piece. And it's really interesting. So you do notice that he points out the arguments that are, that are going to be raised against him, which is not what happened with the prior speaker. Um, he kind of points out the weaknesses and strengths of the argument. He lays out the, the uh, landscape. And he points out all sorts of ways in which he thinks uh, the other people are going to be manipulating the audience, in, you know, t towards their way of thinking. And it's really interesting. The ad hominem obviously comes up. Um, the, uh, the, appeal, the appeal to pity. So that, this, is, this is great. The appeal to emotion and the appeal to pi uh, pity. And that this is where he says, don't be thinking that this is a debate about whether empathy is useful or not, or that people on the con side of the argument are not empathetic. So he's, he points that out. He's like, look, what you're getting ready to hear from these other people is that I'm an asshole and that anybody who believes what I'm saying is an asshole and, and doesn't care about, you know, the, the, the downtrodden, who doesn't care about the dispossessed. He's like, you know, that's coming. Don't be fooled by that. That's what they're going to try to convince you of because it's not, it's not answering my argument. It's throwing me under the bus. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so now I want to enter Michael Eric Dyson to the conversation. Professor Dyson, Georgetown University, Ivy League academic, published author, radio, radio personality, you know, that kind of a guy. All right. <clears throat> Here's his opening remarks. Pay attention to the style, the tone. <clears throat> Pay attention to the words, what he's actually saying. Try to see if you can see the points he's making because it's not so easy to do. All right, here we go. Michael, Michael Dyson says... I'm a preacher, and I will ask for an offering at the end of my presentation. And the audience laughs. 
This is the swimsuit competition of the intellectual beauty pageant. So let me show you the curves of my thought. Oh my God, was that a politically incorrect statement I just made? All right, so that's the opening opening lines here from Michael Dyson. So he makes a joke, um, you know, a couple of jokes, and they're in questionable taste, um, first of all. And he does that to set himself uh, apart from the other candidates. He's speaking in a way that they're not. He's engaging the the audience. He's engaging their their funny bone. He's getting them to to be on you know the same sort of wavelength as him. He's you know he's starting off in a way that I want you to see is manipulative in a way that the others did not do. He's not he's not um, you know nobody else was cracking jokes. Nobody else is. Um, um, you know, saying risque things. Um, you know, he hasn't said anything at all about his, uh, you know, his, his, um, you know, his, his, the perspective he's bringing to the debate. He's just trying to build rapport with the audience, something like that. This, to me, is the is the the group of kids around the two kids that are fighting that that you know is dropping those little sharp one-liners to try to ramp up tensions and, and, and you know, create a, uh, a scene. These are the people in the background making it worse. That's, that's what it sounds like to me. All right, he says, The abortive fantasy just presented is remarkable for both its clarity and yet the muddiness of the context from which it has emerged. So you can see that he's, the way that he's speaking is like, it's something like poetry. It's something like, the way uh, the way a novel would be written, um, non you know n- n- uh, a, f- a fictional novel. So this isn't this isn't nonfiction prose. This is poetry. Talking about what Jordan's opening remarks were, he calls it an abortive fantasy. Okay, the abortive fantasy just presented is remarkable for both its clarity and yet the muddiness of the context from which it has emerged. What's interesting to me is that when we look at the radical left, I'm saying where are they at? I want to join them. They ain't running nothing. I'm from a country where a man stands up every day to tweet the moral mendacity of his viciousness into a nation he has turned into a psychic commode. Y'all got Justin, we got Donald. Okay, does anybody have any idea what that means? What was he saying? I mean, it sounds great. And if you, when, you hear it, when you hear him say it, it sounds way better than me. Um, you know, he's got that rhythm. He's got that, you know, cadence. He's got, he's got it's down. He's got it down. And the point he seems to be making here is, where's the radical left? I, he says, I want to join them, but they ain't running nothing. He's, he's trying to convince you that there isn't a radical left. A- after Jordan has just talked about how dangerous those ideas are and how powerful the, the left is. And here's a man who represents the left in a very high level in society and academia coming in and says, where are they at? I don't know. And then he ends saying, y'all got Justin, we got Donald. What the fuck does that mean? But the audience loves it. Ate it up. Oh, you said something about our president, Justin Trudeau, and, you know, Donald Trump, and he's in the news. Ooh. Something like that. You can see, I, I, you know, this, this type of argument is not one that I respond to well because it seems so much like manipulation, very, very obviously like manipulation, and he's not doing a very good job of even hiding it. All right, so he says... So what's interesting then is that political correctness has transmogrified into a caricature of the left. The left came up with the term political correctness, shall I remind you. So now he's so now he's taking credit for this idea of political correctness and, you know, calling himself uh, <laughs> um, 
Well, he says the left came up with the term political correctness, shall I remind you. So he's aligning himself with the left, the left that five seconds ago he just said, where are they at? They don't exist, okay? He says, we were willing to be self-critical in a way that I fear my confreres are not. So he's saying that the left came up with the idea of political correctness so that they could look at themselves objectively, introspectively, and, and figure out what, what's really wrong about their, you know, their way of things. And he says, and my confreres won't do that, pointing to the other side of the argument saying that Jordan Peterson and uh, Stephen Fry would never look at themselves objectively and, and see where it is maybe that they're wrong. And then he says, don't take yourself too seriously. Smile. <laughs> I mean, if somebody said that to you in an argument, in a heated argument, said, don't take yourself too seriously, smile. How quickly is your fist coming, you know, after the word smile? Answer me that. All right. He says, the radical left is a metaphor, a symbol, an articulation. They don't exist. Their numbers are too small. I'm on college campuses. I don't see much of them coming. All right. So I know this this was said in 2018, but... Do I have to point out the absolute hypocrisy of that? Do I have to point out the ap- absolute ridiculousness of that? There is no radical left. They don't exist and not on college campuses and they're, and they're too small in numbers. Mm, those people are not the ones that manage to censor people all over the internet and all over public speaking engagements to, <laughs> to put a wrench in, in people's careers and to get people fired. And, you know, <laughs> Jordan Peterson himself no longer teaches at the University of Toronto, for Christ's sake. Uh, okay, and then he says, um, "When I hear about when I hear about politi- uh, about identi- identity politics, it amazes me. The collectivist identity politics. Uh, last time I checked, race was an invention from a dominant culture that wanted groups at their behest. The invention of race was driven by the demand of a dominant culture to subordinate others. Patriarchy, right? Okay, okay, so." He says, the last time I checked, race was an invention from a dominant culture that wanted groups at their behest. So now he's made a statement as a person of authority, as an academic, right? So this is the appeal to authority. He gets to be his own authority right now to say that race is something that was invented by a dominant culture to put other cultures under their thumb. What in the absolute fuck does that mean, sir? That race is a concept that human beings invented only so that we could use, manipulate, and enslave other people, and he and and we just get to go. We have to go with that because he because he said it, and he's the and he's the boss. Okay, and then he says the invention of race was driven by the demand of a dominant culture to subord to subordinate others, and then he makes this joke uh, back to Jordan Peterson: patriarchy, right? With a question mark, like you know. This is, this is an example of the bandwagon fallacy that we just talked about. It's an appeal to widespread belief. So it doesn't matter if you're right. If enough people believe that there's a patriarchy, then all you have to do is wink at the crowd and say, there's no patriarchy, right? Everybody fucking disagrees with you. So that means you're wrong, even if you're not wrong. It's the bandwagon fallacy, and that's what he's using to continue to get the audience on, on his side. All right, he says... And yet the right doesn't understand the degree to which identity has been foisted upon black people and brown people and people of color from the very beginning and on women and trans people. All right, so I have to stop. You can, <clears throat> you can even see here how the old political correct argument, um, you know, from, from 20 years ago, uh, 
how it comes out of his mouth and then how he tacks on the new bit, right? He says, identity has been foisted upon black people and brown people and people of color. So that's about going back to the 70s, black people, brown people, maybe the 80s and 90s when we extend this to people of color. And then he says, uh, oh, and women and trans people. He act, adds those on to the end because, of course, you know, you can't, you can't leave them out. That's, that's part of the uh, far left, uh, you know, um, protected spectrum. So we're going to tack those on at the end as an afterthought. He says, you think, <clears throat> you think that I want to be a part of a group that is constantly abhorred by the people at Starbucks? I'm minding my own black business walking down the street. I have group identity thrust upon me. They don't say, ah, aha, there goes a Negro, a highly intelligent, articulate, verbose, capable of rhetorical fury at the drop of a hat. We should not interrogate him as to how the bona fides of his legal status. No, they treat me as a part of a group. And the problem, which our friends don't want to acknowledge, is that the, the hegemony and dominance of that group has been so vicious that it has denied us the opportunity to exist as individuals. Okay. All right, so there's something there. There's something there that I don't want to disregard. Something there at the end where he says uh, where he says that the dominance of that group has been so vicious that it has denied us the opportunity to exist as individuals. Um, so it's funny that that he's again arguing this collectivist viewpoint this whole time. And then turning around and saying, oh, no, what the problem is, is that uh, is that the dominant culture has kept minorities from being able to exist as individuals, which is the exact same argument Jordan was making when he said that the correct level to protect is the individual, not the group. We should acknowledge and protect the individual, not the group. So now, so now Mr. Dyson's making this sort of the same argument that Jordan was making, but he's framing it in a racist way that distances himself from, the, from, from Jordan. <laughs> really interesting. I also want to point out here that, that when he says, you know, he, he basically says he can't go to Starbucks without people looking at him, you know, out of, you know strangely out of, out of their eyes because he's black. And he, you know, somehow that means he shouldn't be at Starbucks or something. It doesn't make any sense to me. And then he says, I'm minding my own black business. So he inserts race into it. Walking down the street, I have a group identity thrust upon me. You're saying because I notice you, because I, I know what your appearance is, that, that, somehow, that somehow means that you have an identity thrust upon you that you don't want? I just don't understand. And then he says this. They don't say, ah, aha, there goes a Negro, highly intelligent, articulate, verbose, capable of rhetorical fury at the drop of a hat. And I just can't help but, but point out the bragginess of this. So he's saying, look, these white people who see me don't say, look, there goes a black guy who's very smart and speaks really well and could destroy me in a debate because that's how this reads. So he wants you to know that about him. I'm just pointing that out. Um, again, that's kind of an ad hominem in reverse. It's making the argument, making the argument from, you know, uh, from, from this sort of, dolled up uh, Michael Dyson that we're, that we're, we're trying to make out to be some sort of Superman. So the argument coming from the Superman is obviously better than the one coming from the, uh, the angry white man, which is a word that, that he uses in a minute to describe Jordan Peterson. All right. So he goes on. He says, what I'm saying to you is that the knowledge that I bring as a person of color makes a difference in my body because I know what people think of me and I know how they respond to me. And that ain't no theory. Okay. I want to point out here, um, 
well, maniacal arrogance for one, it's something that we talk about, but that's not exactly a logical fallacy. But here, but here's, here's, here's the point. He says, he says, what I'm saying is that the knowledge that I bring as a person of color makes a difference in my body. I don't have any fucking idea what that means. The knowledge I bring as a person of color makes a difference in my body. I don't know what that means, man. Okay, he says, because I know what people think of me and I know how they respond to me. Okay, so that's the arrogant part. I know what people think of me and I know how they respond to me. So what, you, so what, what man? You're fucking Nostradamus now? You know strangers you meet in the, on the street, the, the white guy at Starbucks you've never met in your life who's looking at you. You know what's going through his mind? Some hateful shit about you, Mr. Dyson? Are you kidding me? And that ain't no theory? And that's coming from the academic. That's coming from the Ivy League Georgetown professor. That's an appeal to authority. And because he's a black man, that's also an appeal to authority. I know how it's like to be a black man. That's what he's saying. You don't know. I know you don't know. Whew, Jesus Christ, man. And that's why it's so difficult to have these arguments. Because he's not having an argument. And he's making it very fucking clear. All right, he goes on. He says, am I mad at trigger warnings? The only trigger warning I want is from a cop. Are you about to shoot me? Not funny in America where young black people die repeatedly unarmed without provocation. Okay, so you notice how he asks himself a question that nobody asked him. Am I mad about trigger warnings? And then he answers it. So he's setting himself up like a comedian. The only trigger warning I, I, I want is from a cop. So now we're not arguing about political correctness anymore. So now he's making a, we're having a whole other argument. So what do we call that? You know, a false equivalency, begging the question, something like that. So now he wants to have this conversation about cops and, and their mistreatment of black people, and that's somehow part of the political correct debate. Is it? No. But he fucking made it one, and the whole audience is like, yeah, nodding their heads. Yeah, what about those? What about those nasty cops shooting black people? All right. <clears throat> he says, um, I believe in the interrogation of knowledge based upon the mutual understanding of the edifying proposition of enlightenment. At the same time, some people ain't as equal as others. So we have to understand the conditions under which they have emerged and in which they have been uh, benighted and attacked by their own culture. And I ain't seen nobody be a bigger snowflake than white men who complain, mommy, mommy, they won't let us play and have everything we used to have under the old regime where we were right, racist and supremacist and dominant and patriarchs and hated gays and lesbians and transsexuals. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to share this ain't your world. This is everybody's world. <laughs> oh my motherfucking god! Sorry for the uh, sorry for the uh, outburst. Oh boy. All right. So he says, some people ain't as equal as others, and he says that as though it's a fact, even though there's uh, equal treatment under the law in this country, and it has been for some time. Even though slavery hasn't existed in a very long time, even all the social progress we've made uh, since, you know, the Civil War, doesn't matter. Some people ain't as equal as others, he says, as though that's a fact. And he means socially. I mean, clearly, we're all, we're all not equal to others. Uh, you know, we're all, we're all, some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are skinny, some of us are fat, some of us are athletic, some of us have high IQs, some of us don't. We're all different, Absolutely. But he's saying some people ain't as equal as others from a social perspective. Okay. All right. Then he says, I ain't seen no bigger snowflake than white men who complain. 
Mommy, mommy, they won't let us play and have everything we used to have under the old regime. Now, he doesn't leave that to our imagination what that means. He's saying that white people are upset about social progress because what that means is, and I quote, we can't be racist, supremacist, dominant patriarchs. We're not allowed to hate gays or lesbians or transgenders anymore. And the world doesn't belong to us. He says, this ain't your world. This is everybody's world. Okay, what? And again, this is an appeal to authority. This is the great you know, social academic, the Ivy League one of, from one of the most prestigious universities in the world, who's an expert on the, on the matters. And he says that white people upset about per- political correctness are concerned that, that their toys have been taken away from them on the playground and we're complaining to mommy, mommy, whoever the fuck that is, that we can't be racist anymore. Are you fucking kidding me? So that's an appeal to emotion for anybody who thinks white people are racist and holding them down, right? It's also a red herring. It's diversionary. We're not having this conversation about political correctness at all. We're having this conversation about apparently white people being racist and, and trying to keep the world down. That's our, like, that's our entire identity and existence, and that's the purpose of our, of our being, for Christ's sake. And then he says, and let me end by saying this. You remember that story from David Foster Wallace? Two fish are going along and an older fish comes in the opposite direction. He says, hello, boys, how's the water? They swim on. They turn to each other. What the hell is water? Because when you're in it, you don't know it. When you're dominant, you don't know it. Note, uh, nothing Kaiser Soze said uh, the devil did is more impo- interesting than to make people believe he didn't exist. And he says that's what white supremacy is. <laughs> okay. Okay. So he, he, so he quashes this by saying, and if you don't think that you're racist as a white person... And that, and that white supremacist isn't some, it, it, supremacy isn't something that you're just sort of oozing out of your pores and everything you do and supporting the system of it. It's because it's invisible to you because you're such a part of the problem that you can't see it. You're blind to it, you know, just like the devil convincing people who didn't exist. Not only that, but it, but it kind of also does this double, serves this double function of, 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 of creating a metaphor between the devil and white people. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Believable. All right, so that's an ad hominem as well. So I don't have to worry about uh, white people at all or any arguments that they're going to bring, including Jordan Peterson's, because, you know, um, he's the devil. He's the devil. Oh, boy. All right, so I'm going to skip ahead here to Jordan Peterson's response. And he says this. I've studied totalitarianism for a very long time, both on the left and on the right in various forms. And I think we've done a pretty decent job determining when right-wing beliefs become dangerous. I think that they become dangerous when they and the people who stand on the right evoke notions of racial superiority or ethnic superiority, something like that. It's fairly easy and necessary, I think, to draw a box around them and place them to one side. We've done a pretty good job of that. What I fail to see happening on the left, and this is with regard to the sensible left, because such a thing exists is for the same thing to happen with regard to the radical leftists. So here's an open question. If it's not diversity, inclusivity, and equity as a, as a triumvirate that, that marks out the too excessive left, and with equity defined, by the, by the way, not as a quality of opportunity, which is absolutely laudable goal, but, but a quality of outcome, which is how it is defined, then exactly how do we demarcate the too extreme left? 
What do we do? So notice, Jordan Peterson's now not, he's not trying to like tit for tat with Michael Dyson. He's not trying to, ins- you know, answer insults with insults. He's saying, okay, fine. You believe all those, all those things that I just picked apart, by the way, very easily. Um, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and just ask a question. I want to know what you have to say then. Because what I'm worried about is when the left and the right go too far. So you're coming from the left. What I want to know is how do we know when this political correctness stuff goes too far? How do we know when the left goes too far? Because we can see when the right goes too far. We know things like Nazism. We, we see that. It's a bad thing. We want to avoid that. How do we know when the left goes too far? Can you tell me? This is how Michael Dyson responds. Thomas Jefferson was one of the great arbiters of rationality. But he was also a man who was a slave owner. How do you reconcile that? That's the complication I'm speaking about. That's not either or. That's not a collective identity. Thomas Jefferson believed in a collective identity. That is, during the day. At night, he got some Luther Vandross songs, went out to the slave quarter, and engaged in sexual relations and had many children with Sally Hemings. His loins trumped his logic. And when Mr. Peterson talks about postmodernism, I don't know who he's talking about. I teach postmodernism. It's kind of fun. Jacques Derrida, just to say his name is beautiful. Okay, let me stop here for a second. All right, so I don't know if you picked up on this, but, but Michael Dyson didn't say shit. Um, he didn't say shit. He didn't offer anything new here, except for more racist uh, banter that I'm not sure what purpose it serves. He brings up Thomas Jefferson that he was a slave owner. He says that Thomas Jefferson was a collectivist, but doesn't offer any, doesn't offer any evidence for that. Thomas Jefferson believed in, in a collective identity. What do you mean? Because the collective identity is supposed to be the part, like Jordan said, that corresponds with the left. Are you saying Thomas Jefferson was left? Are you saying he was, he was a lefty, a progressive? Uh, and then he says, well, that is during the day. During the night, he went and had sex with his slaves. Okay, well, shouldn't it be the other way around if you're trying to make the argument that, uh, that, that Thomas Jefferson was more progressive than, than he pretended to be because he was sleeping with, with, with slave women? Like he, he was okay with, you know, cross, cross uh, um, you know, uh, you know uh, breeding between the, between the races or whatever you want to call it? Um, but, but that's not the argument he makes. He's just, again, queuing up like a motherfucking golf ball, a way for him to talk more, more racist, uh, you know, um, talking points that undermine the, you know, the, I, I guess the, the foundations of the government of the United States, for lack of a better word. I mean, it seems to be Thomas Jefferson being brought in as a symbol of the founding fathers and then saying that, you know, he, he was a, you know, um, his loins trumped his logic, he says. So, okay, we're going to, it's sort of an ad hominem too. We're going to, we're, we're going to throw away the entire country, the entire constitution under the bus because, Thomas Jefferson wasn't consistent with his, with his, with, you know, ideas on race. Like what, what he's, he, he's, he participated in drafting the constitution, which, which held up slavery, which he did, although he argued against and, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot more gray there we could talk about. Um, but, but then turned around and treated his slaves that way. Like I have no idea what his relationship was like with Sally Hemings or anybody else. I have no idea what his relationship was like. I have no idea if he mistreated Sally, if, if it was rape, if, if, if Sally lived like a wife with him. You know, I have no idea. The culture was different. The times were different. And we don't know the, those details. And he certainly doesn't offer any here. He just, again, 
tees it up like a golf ball to bring some more racism into the conversation that I'm not exactly sure, but seems but seems to be used to to undermine Jordan's arguments. I don't exactly know how, apart from getting the audience, uh, again, to agree with him on some unrelated fucking point. And then he says some horse shit here about, about uh, defending Jordan Peterson's critique of postmodernism. Why? How? How does he defend it? By saying that Jacques Derrida, who was one of these fundamental postmodern writers, has a beautiful sounding name. What in the actual fuck, man? All right, here we go. He says, and here we are, deriving our sense of identity from the very culture that we ignore. Look at the indigenous names and the First Nations names. Toronto, Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, Tim Hortons. And the audience laughs. Tim Hortons, fucking ha, hilarious. But I'll tell you, there's an envy of the kind of freedom and liberty that people of color and other minorities bring because we bring the depth of knowledge in our body. There's a kind of jealousy of it. Okay. Okay, so... Here again, he's, uh, he's trying to drop these Native American names in the hopes that some people in the audience that are either Native American or are sensitive to the idea of preserving these other cultures, other quote-unquote other liberals, I, I would say, to be on his, again, on his side. He makes the funny joke adding Tim Hortons in because why? Because the audience laughs because now they have more good feelings towards him. They're, you know, it's manipulation. And then he says the strangest thing I've ever heard. But I'll tell you, there's an envy of the kind of freedom and liberty that people of color and other minorities bring. So now he's saying something like, despite slavery and despite discrimination of the patriarchy and all the stuff that he's talking about that, that, that he's insisting is holding down you know, uh, black people and brown people and minorities and women and trans gay people and everything else, whatever other name he can throw in there, despite that all that stuff holds them down, he says that they have this enviable type of freedom that nobody else has and we're all jealous of. He says, he says, people of color and other minorities bring the depth of knowledge in our body and that everybody's jealous of it. Okay, first of all, I don't know, have any idea what a, bringing a depth of knowledge in your body means. I don't think that it means anything. And he's bringing this up and saying that the, wor- the rest of the world is jealous of it as though it explains why we're mistreating them. And then he goes on to say, we shouldn't be nasty and combative, and yet I don't see nastiness and, combat- and combativeness from, from people. I see them desiring to have their individual identities respected. When I get shot down for no other reason than I'm black, when I get categorized for no other reason than my color, I am living in a culture that refuses to see me as a great individual. Okay. Okay. So he sees people desiring to have their individuals, individual identities respected. Again, that's exactly what Jordan Peterson said at the beginning of this. Not sure why he's bringing it up now as though it's contrary. And then he says, I'm living in a culture that refuses to see me as a great individual. Again, I want to point out the braggishness about including the word great when he's talking about himself. Secondly, um, that just supports the idea that he's an authority. And it's also... It's also, you know, rubs me the wrong way, actually. You know, why are you talking yourself up in this conversation, man? Um, and, if, and if preserving your identities, your individual identities, and having them respected is important, shouldn't you be agreeing with Jordan Peterson here? Shouldn't you? I mean, maybe if you weren't listening, maybe if you weren't listening to him, that you, you might be able to think that. But uh, 
it seems to me that you should be agreeing with him here. All right. So I'm going to skip a little a little bit ahead here to Jordan Peterson again. Uh, things start to get a little fiery here, and I want you I want you guys to see it. All right. He says, "Let's assume for a moment that I've benefited from my white privilege." Okay, that's Jordan Peterson's opening opening remark. Michael Dyson says, "That's a good assumption." Jordan says, "Yeah, well, that's what you would say." So let's get precise about this, okay? Michael Dyson says, "Mm-hmm." Let's get precise. Jordan says. To what degree is my present level of attainment or achievement a consequence of my white privilege? Do you mean 5%? Do you mean 15%? Do you mean 25 or 75%? And what do you propose I do about it? How about a tax? How about a tax that's specialized for me so I can account for my damn privilege so that I can stop hearing about it? Now let's get precise about one other thing, okay? If we can agree, if we, uh, and we haven't, that the left can go too far, which it clearly can, then how would my worthy opponent precisely define when the left uh, that, they, that they stand for has gone too far? You didn't like equity, equality of outcome. I think that's a great marker. But if you have a better suggestion and won't sidestep the question, let's figure out how I can dispense with my white privilege. And you tell me when the left has gone too far since they clearly can. And that's what this debate is about, political correctness. It's about the left going too far, and I think it's gone too far in many ways, and I like to figure out exactly how and when so the reasonable left can make its ascendance again, and we can quit all this nonsense. Okay. I mean, fair question. Fair question. So he's saying to, he's saying to Michael Dyson, look, you still haven't answered my question about can the left go too far, and what should we be looking for as, you know, as a warning sign of that? And I also, I'd like to know, if I'm, if I'm so unfair, unfairly reach the, this place in my life because of my white privilege, whatever that might mean, explain to me how the fuck it is that I'm, that I'm supposed to do anything about that, what I can do to level, level the playing field. And he even proposes, how about, how about I put an individual tax on me that kind of makes up for my privilege, something like that. And if that idea doesn't scare you, you haven't read enough, uh, you haven't, you haven't read enough uh, fiction. So things like, uh, you know, 1984 come to mind. All right, so Michael Dyson says this in response. Jordan Peterson, this is what I'm saying to you. Why the rage, bro? You're doing well, but you're mean. You're mean, mad. Excuse me. Fuck this one up. Why the rage? Why the rage, bro? You're doing well, but you're a mean, mad white man, and you're going to get us, right? I've never seen so much wine and snowflaking. There's enough wine in here to start a vineyard. And what I'm saying to you empirically and precisely when you ask the question about white privilege and ask it in, a, in the way that you did, dismissive, pseudoscientific, non-empirical, and without justification, is that first, the truth is that white privilege doesn't act according to quantifiable segments. It's about the degree to which we are willing as a society to grapple with the ideals of freedom, justice, and equality upon which it's based. So let me stop there for a second. Did Michael Dyson answer either of those questions that Jordan asked him? Not even close. Did it sound nice? Yeah. Did the audience, you know, uh, uh, show their, their agreement? Yes. Did he say anything substantial? No. Very, very clearly no. Jordan said, look, how do we identify when the left has gone too far? And exactly what can I do about my white privilege if it's a problem? If you, like, like you say it is. And his response is, I've never seen so much wine and snowflaking. 
So he's insulting him. He's, he's oversimplifying the argument here, right? That's the straw man argument we talked about. Uh, he says there's enough wine in here to start a vineyard. So he's making another joke, which is all about getting the audience on his side. It has nothing to do with actually taking what Jordan has to say seriously or trying to, trying to have any solutions here. And then he says, what I'm saying to you empirically and precisely. So he's, he's now, you know, Jordan asked him to be precise. So now he's sort of making fun of that. Uh, he says, when you ask the question about right, white pr- privilege and, and ask it in a way that you did. And now he says, dismissive, pseudoscientific, and non-empirical without justification. So he's saying that, look, dismissive, meaning that white privilege is an idea that it has merit and that Jordan has brushed it off unfairly, which you could argue, but I think he's, you know, Jordan is on the right track. Pseudoscientific. So he's saying now that Jordan, Jordan's objection to this idea of white privilege is not scientific, which is completely ridiculous uh, because it's not a scientific uh, notion at all. And he says non-empirical, which is another word for not scientific. So he said that twice and without justification. So these are all ways of insulting Jordan as a person. So that's ad hominem. We're going to destroy the person. Now, I don't have to take your question about white privilege seriously because you're not scientific and you're dismissive. You're not taking this serious topic seriously. All of that's contained in his very, very eloquently sounding response that says nothing, nothing. And then he says, first, the truth is that white privilege doesn't act according to quantifiable segments. And that's how he's getting, getting out of answering him when he says, to what degree is my white privilege responsible for my success? So Michael Dyson says, look, I don't have a way of answering that question. Well, fucking Jordan Peterson agrees with you, sir. All right. So then, um, Michael goes on. He says, the quote, the quotation you talk about, the difference between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity, he says, that's a stead and retired, uh, argument, uh, uh, a hack, a hackneyed phrase. He says, um, he says, if you, if you free a person after a whole long time of oppression and say, now you are free to survive. If they have no skills, if they have no quantifiable means of existence. What you have done is liberated them into oppression. So I think Jordan Peterson is suffering from anything except an exaggerated sense of, of entitlement and resentment. That's how he, that's how he ends. Okay. So his response to Jordan's question about um, the difference between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity, um, Jordan, earlier he said, look, if what we're talking about is equality of opportunity, I'm all about that. Everybody should have an equal opportunity at, at, at everything the world has to offer. Um, the people who are the most competent, the people that are the most deserving, the people that try the hardest, those are the people that should be able to rise to the top and all things being equal. Yes, I think we can all agree with that. Everyone listening can agree with that. Left or right, yes. What Jordan said is that the equality of, of outcome, on the other hand, is not. We cannot guarantee everybody's going to get an A on the paper. We cannot guarantee everybody's going to be able to feed th- themselves every night. We cannot give the same outcomes to everyone. Why? Because, because not everybody has earned that outcome. Right? If you don't try hard and somebody does, do you deserve the same thing as them? Fucking no. Everyone agrees Everyone agrees with that. So how does Michael Dyson get out of that argument? Because he doesn't answer it. He says, oh, Jordan Peterson's argument's a retired and hackneyed arg- argument. He just, he just says, what? 
an ad hominem, he attacks the man, or a straw man, he, he takes that he takes that complicated d- debate about a, a quality of outcome and a quality of opportunity, he rolls it up in a ball and says it's a hackneyed phrase and we can dismiss the whole thing. <laughs> oh my God. And then he says this horseshit. Um, he says... He says, if you free a person after a long time of oppression and say, now you're free to survive. Okay, that sounds like a good thing to me. If you, if you don't believe in slavery and you agree with personal freedom, yes, if someone is a slave, they should be freed. Fucking yes, Michael, I agree with you. Then he says, but if they have no skills and they have no quantifiable means of existence, whatever that means, then what you've done is liberated them into oppression. Okay, so... Let's, let's go to the exact example that he's probably referring to here. Let's go to this example of a slave, an American slave. You know, in, in uh, post-slavery, you know, this person gets freed. They have no, uh, no house. They have no job because all that stuff used to be, you know, back home on, at the plantation. Now they're trying to find their own way. You know, to say they have no skills is kind of stupid. I mean, they were farming, right? So they can probably do that. They're not dumb. They're, 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 you know, these are just ordinary people. They've got skills, labor skills, you know, just like anybody else. Going back into the late 1800s when this is taking place, labor is basically all, the only market there is. So no skills kind of seems like bullshit to me. You're saying that, that, a, that a former slave is not capable of finding a job and, and feeding their family and building, a, building a, a, a shelter and hunting. And I mean, they can do nothing. They can do nothing, Michael. Nothing. Okay. And, and suppose that they can't. Does that mean that we've liberated them into oppression? Is that what it means? Or does it mean that they've, like Jordan Peterson would describe, they found themselves, uh, you know, in this uncomfortable situation, this chaos, where now they, have to, now they have to struggle, they have to do something hard. We all have to do that at one point uh, or another. Um, sometimes that hard thing we have to get over is big, and sometimes it's small. And for this free slave, it would be very big. I can, I can agree with you. It would be very big. With the proper motivation, to say that it's impossible is ridiculous. If I found myself, let's say... In a foreign country, let's say, let's say for some reason, me and my family get dropped down in Eastern Europe, someplace where I don't speak the language, where the infrastructure is is you know minor, where it's a hard life. I don't know anybody. I don't speak the language, but I've got to feed my family and shelter my family. You think I won't? You think I won't? I will find a way. I'll find a way. Right, because it's all about priorities. It's about how much how much. Work you, you will put in to accomplishing a goal. And if it's boiling down to life or death, you will do what you have to do. How is, that, how is that liberating you into oppression? It's liberating you into a very, very hard situation. But being free is a hard situation. Making, making your own way is a hard situation. Is Michael Dyson saying that, that what we want is to make an easy way for everybody? Kind of seems like he is. Because otherwise, how is this unfair? How is freeing somebody unfair? Come on, man. All right, so <clears throat> so um, he, he ends this by saying, so I think Jordan Peterson is suffering from anything except an exaggerated sense of entitlement and resentment, which is just another slap in the face in direct ad hominem. It's an attack directly on Jordan Peterson. And again, halfway through this debate, he said nothing substantial to counter his arguments or to even answer any of his questions which have really been simple and only two so far. All right, Jordan says, well, 
What I derive from that series of rebuttals is twofold. The first is that saying that the radical left goes too far when they engage in violence is not a sufficient response by any stretch of the imagination, because there are sets of ideas in radical leftist thinking that led to the catastrophes of the 20th century, and that was at the level of idea, not at the level of violent action. So what is Jordan, what is Jordan talking about when he's talking about the, catas- the catastrophes of the 20th century? He's talking about the deaths in the concentration camps. He's talking about the deaths in communist China. He's talking about the deaths in communist, the communist Soviet Union. He's talking about millions and millions of people that died because of fascism and communism uh, in the 20th century. That's what he's talking about. And what he's saying here is that all of those, all of those things that led to, these, to this terrible outcome, those things began at the level of idea. Okay, so, so he goes on to say, it's very straightforward. It's a very straightforward thing to say you're against violence. It's like being against poverty. Generically speaking, decent people are against poverty and violence. It doesn't address the issue in the least. And with regard to my privilege or lack thereof, I am not making the case that I haven't had advantages in my life and disadvantages in my in my life, like most people. You don't know anything about my background or where I came from, but it doesn't matter to you because fundamentally, I'm a mean white man. That's a hell of a thing to say in a debate. So I just have to point out. Fucking amen, Jordan. It's a hell of a thing to say in a debate. Uh, because, it's, because, again, it's, it's anti-debate. Uh, Michael Dyson's not having a discussion. He's trying, to, he's trying to defeat Jordan Peterson. He's not having a discussion. It's not about ideas. And that's cl- very clear. All right. Um, all right, so let's see. All right, Michael Dyson, he comes back. He says this. He says, imagine the hurt, the anxiety, the insult that you might genuinely feel according to what I felt was an appropriate comment of description at the moment of its expression. So he's, he's sort of apologizing right here. And Jordan says, I'm not hurt. He says, that's really different. I'm not a victim. I'm not hurt. I'm appalled. I'm appalled. Because what they're there to do is to try to, is to, try to get to the heart of this debate and to see if there's any common ground to see if there's any progress that can be made. And what Michael Dyson has done is taken, that, taken it as a battle um, without, without any desire to do that. All right. So Jordan says, oh no, excuse me. So Michael says, I'm interested in an individual, as an individual, and in breaking down barriers so that people can understand just how complicated it is. So what I'm saying to you is that I would invite you in terms of surrender of your privilege to give you a specific response, to come with me to a black Baptist church, come with me to a historically black college, uh, come with me to an indigenous or First Nations community where we're able to engage in some lovely conversation, but also listen and hear. And when I added race to that, I was talking about people's historical inability to acknowledge others' pains equally to the ones that they're presently enduring. All right, so, so what he's done here is... And you see, you see this all the time. This is interesting. What he's done here is saying, look, it's clear I'm not going to engage you on this debate. What, what, what I will do is say, come with me to the Black Baptist Church. Come with me to a, to a Native American community and listen and learn. So what's the implication there? The implication is that, that he's not going to engage with Jordan in this debate because Jordan isn't a, a sufficient human being worthy of... of having the conversation, because there's information Jordan doesn't have. Information about what it's like to be black or what it's like to be a minority. And uh, he's got a lot of, a lot of uh, learning to do, basically. And Jordan says, 
Well, I've seen a lot of, I've seen all sorts of things um, that you're talking about. I happen to be an honorary member of an indigenous family. So don't tell me what I should see. Well, don't tell me what I should go see with regard to oppression. You actually don't know anything about me, which is very true. So again, the assumption, the assumption that, that, that uh, Michael Dyson has made is that Jordan Peterson isn't intimately familiar with, with minority life uh, and has this huge piece missing in his knowledge that makes him, that makes him, you know, um, unworthy of this conversation. And uh, Jordan's like, look, you, you, you can't make those sorts of blanket statements. That's an ad hominem. You're, 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 con- you're trying to convince the audience that I have a big hole in my experience. I don't know what it's like. I haven't, I haven't done the work of, of, of trying to understand what other people's I- experience is like. And at the same time, putting yourself up as a person who has to the nth degree, like, you know, better than anybody else because you're an authority on it. Right. Right. Mr. Dyson. And Jordan's like, you motherfucker, you don't know anything about me. You know, I'm, I'm an honorary member of an indigenous family in Canada. I know very well what their life is like. I'm a psychologist. I'm in people's, I'm, I'm in people's, you know, deepest and most, you know, um, psychologically deep, uh, uh, stories every day. I, I, I know this stuff and you're, and you're trying to paint me out like a caricature. That's again, a straw man argument. Let's paint this guy up to be a racist without any, you know, he's out of touch. He's an out of touch, old, mean, racist man. And we don't have to take anything he says seriously. Right? And how does he respond to that? He says, you asked me a question. I gave you a response. (laughs) And Jordan says, you gave me a generic response, a generic race-based response. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. So, So now Jordan says, I want you to define when the left goes too far. Can you do, can any of you do that? He's asking. So, so Michelle Goldberg, the other one, she jumps back in and she says, I think that the left goes too far when it is violent or censorous. So when it censors people, when it tries to shut people down or no platform them, uh, or when it acts violently, I'm not sure what you expect beyond that. And Jordan says something deeper. And Ms. Goldberg says something deeper. How? He says, I'd like you to contend with the set of left-wing ideas that produce all the left-wing pathologies of the 20th century and to define how you think standard left-wing, left-wing thinking, which has a valuable place, goes too far, since it obviously does. Now, Michael Dyson comes in, he says, has the right gone too far? So notice, this is a diversion. <laughs> so, this is called a red herring. Talked about this. Michael Dyson j- inserts himself back into the conversation to do a red herring. So... So Jordan's desperately trying to make progress. Maybe Dyson won't do it. Maybe Goldberg will do it. Tell me how the left goes too far. And Michael Dyson says, how can we derail this one? We can't, we can't actually answer the question. He comes in and says, has the right gone too far? It's called a red herring, you guys. Jordan Peterson says, of course the right has gone too far. Michael Dyson says, tell us how. Tell us how the conservatives suck. Make sure the audience hears this. Jordan Peterson says, well, how about Auschwitz? And then Michael Dyson says, what else? More recently, what, is, what has gone wrong with the right? Jordan Peterson says, look, I don't like identity politics players at all. I don't care whether they're on the left or the right. I've been lecturing about right-wing extremism for 30 years. I'm no fan of the right, despite the fact that the left would like to paint me that way, because it's more convenient for them. Michael Dyson says, how has the right gone too far recently? <laughs> because, why? Because he wants, he wants the person that's supposed to be in the conservative seat in the debate Tell the audience all the bad things that 
He is, basically. He wants, he wants to manipulate the audience and to manipulate the conversation. That's all he's trying to do. I just want you guys to see that. Jordan responds, It's threatening to go too far in identitarian Europe, that's for sure. It's gone too far in Charlottesville. It went too far in Norway. Mr. Dyson says, So, so what about IQ testing in terms of genetic inheritance? Okay, what? So you see how he's throwing off red herrings left and right. So he, he doesn't want um, this, this Michelle Goldberg lady to say anything substantial about how, how the left goes too, goes too far, right? Because they're on the left. And he, instead, he wants to pin Jordan Peterson down to doing that for the right, to say how the right goes too far. And when Jordan Peterson doesn't, he says, so what about IQ testing in terms of genetic inheritance? So what's, what's that going to do, guys? That conversation is about differences in IQ between people of different races and sexes. So how is that conversation not going to make people think that Jordan is racist or sexist or both? That's exactly what it's designed to do. It's a red herring. Or now we're not going to... Uh, he, so he says, how has the right gone too far? Jordan's answered him. So what does he do? He throws another red herring out. Let's talk about race and IQ. And Jordan says... We're here to talk about political correctness, and we've done a goddamn poor job of it. <laughs> and then Michael, Michael Dyson says, oh, I see. I gave you an example, and you can't answer. Okay, all right. So that, obviously, is uh, silly, makes no sense, and yet the audience hearing that uh, believes that Jordan Peterson has um, failed to answer one of Dyson's questions, which was completely unrelated. All right, here are the closing arguments. Michael Dyson, he says, I'm used to not exclusively white men who see black intelligence articulated at a certain level feeling a kind of condescension. A kind of verbal facility is automatically assumed to be a kind of hucksterism and snake oil salesmanship. I've seen that. I get it. I get hate letters every day from white brothers and sisters who are mad I'm teaching their children. Quote, you're just trying to co-opt our children. You're trying to corrupt them. Unquote. Yes. I'm trying to corrupt them so that they will be uncorrupted by the corruptibility that they've inherited from a society that refuses to see all people as human beings. All right, so I just have to say, I'm going to read this again because you'll see the sentence is fucking nonsense, but it sounds good. <sighs> yes, I'm trying to corrupt them so that they will be uncorrupted by the corruptibility that they've inherited from a society that refuses to see all people as human beings. So what is that sentence doing? It's presuming all kinds of shit, nasty shit. And this is Michael Dyson's words. So I want to point this out. He says, yes, I'm corrupting them so that they will be uncorrupted by the corruptibility that they inherited from a society that refuses to see people as human beings. So what, what he's saying is that all the students, all the white students that he's teaching, they're already corrupted by a society that, has, that, that teaches them that people uh, are not all equal, and people are not all human beings, and some are better than others. So his job is to is to undo all of that, okay? And that presumes that he knows better than them. It presumes that he's correct, that society is corrupt, and does teach white people to hate other people, which is all completely fucking nonsense. All right, then he says, I agree with my confreres and my compatriots that we should argue against the vicious limitations and recursions against speech. I believe that everybody has the right to be able to articulate themselves. There's an old story about the pig and the chicken going down the street and saying, let's have breakfast. The chicken just has to give up an egg. The pig has to give up his ass in order to make breakfast. 
We have often been the pigs, giving up our asses to make breakfast. Let's start sharing them asses with everybody else. Thank you. So that's how Michael Dyson ends. He says, we've been giving our ass. So what he's saying is, him personally, black people, and by extension all the other people he kept haphazardly threw in with them, people of color and, and transgender people and all that other stuff, and that they've been giving up more. They've been giving up their asses, and that we need to chip in and do our fair share, basically. And by we, he means white people, for lack of, for lack of a more precise word, or, or the entire system, culture, uh, and society as a whole. Um, boy, boy. So what that does, and, and it's interesting because you, we go back to this, um, braggishness that I pointed out where he's, he's talking about how white people see black people. He means like him, by the way, that he says, articulate themselves at a certain level, um, having a, a verbal, uh, facility, you know, that, that people, he says white people think of as hucksterism and snake oil salesmanship. He's saying that somebody who's black like him cannot be smart and well-spoken without, without people thinking that he's um, playing a game, that he's not really smart, that he's pretending. And as much as I, as much as I hate to point out uh, this fact, that's what Michael Dyson did during this debate. Um, he didn't answer any questions. He didn't offer anything substantial. He offered nothing but ad hominems and red herrings and tried to make Jordan Peterson out to be a villain and never once spoke to him with respect and never once took his ideas seriously and never once tried, even though Jordan asked many times. And when Michelle Goldberg tried to do it, Michael Dyson stepped in and prevented that from happening too. Um, so was that a debate or was that snake oil salesmanship? You be the judge. Okay, so now Jordan Peterson, his closing remarks, he says, I'm not here to claim that there's no such thing as oppression, unfairness, brutality, discrimination, unfair use of power, all of those. Anyone with any sense knows that hierarchical structures tilt towards tyranny and that we have to be constantly wakeful to ensure that, that all they are isn't just power and tyranny. It's interesting to hear Foucault referred to it's unfortunate, but it's interesting, because Foucault, like his French intellectual confrères, essentially believed that the only basis upon which hierarchies were established is power. And that's part of this pernicious politically correct doctrine that I've been speaking about. When a hierarchy becomes corrupt, then the only way to ascend it is to exercise power. That's essentially the definition of tyranny. But that doesn't mean the imperfect hierarchies that we have constructed in our relatively free countries don't at least tilt somewhat towards competence and ability, as evidenced by the staggering achievements of civilization. It doesn't mean that the appropriate way of diagnosing them is to assume, without reservation, unidimensionally, that they're all about power, and as a consequence, that everyone who occupies any position within them is a tyrant, or a tyrant in the making. And that is certainly the fundamental claim of someone like Foucault, and it's part and parcel of this ideological catastrophe that is political correctness. The point is, we can agree on the catastrophe, and we can agree on the historical inequity, but there's no way I'm going to agree that political correctness is the way to address any of that. And there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, some of which I would say was displayed quite clearly tonight. <laughs> oh, man. So that is a stinging, a stinging way of, of ending that debate. So, I don't know what you think about that, guys. I don't know how good of a job I did reading 
uh, excerpts from that debate pointing out these logical fallacies, pointing out how much of these arguments really are designed to make you think something or to pull on your emotions, to manipulate you, to think in a way you wouldn't think if you were logically minded, if you were cool-headed. Um, you know, if you were picking apart these people's logic, who would you agree with? I think that's different than if you just listen to the debate. If you listen to the debate, many people listening, like the crowd around the two people getting ready to fight, would believe that, that Michael Dyson did a great job uh, and was, was winning at least public opinion. Um, when, you, when you read it and you break it down like I did, you can see that that could not be further from the truth. Um, I don't know how good of a job I did illustrating that, but I think we can do this a little bit, a little bit differently if we listen to this clip that I, you got a little sneak peek of a, a minute ago. This is a CNN clip that, um, that I saw on Twitter that, that Michael Malice, uh, uh, retweeted or maybe he tweeted himself. Um, and it just illustrates this so well. I, I, I happened to listen to it on Twitter. It was one of those things that fell into place with this episode. So here we go. Let me see if I can get it back up for you. <clears throat> here we are. Don Lemon. People, when it comes to this and the vaccine, saying, oh, you can't shame them. You can't call them stupid. You can't call them silly. Yes, they are. The people who aided and abetted Trump are stupid because they believed his big lie. Okay, so I'll stop right there. So the people who aided and abetted Trump. So what he means there is people that had conservative opinions that lined up with Trump's or somebody that was that was willing to vote for Trump because the status quo was so difficult to go with. Those people are all dumb and stupid, he says. So that's an ad hominem. It's also a um, it's also a straw man, right? Because it doesn't matter what all of those good arguments are, reasons why people might have supported Trump. You know, maybe because he was not a, a not a a party person. Maybe maybe because he said things to the media that nobody else would ever say. Called them on their shit. Uh, maybe because he got was tough on China. Maybe because whatever. Um, any of the reasons why you might think that that Trump, um, you know, was was doing something good or 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 whatever. All of those arguments get thrown under under the bus. They don't, they mean nothing because if you were persuaded by them, you were dumb. That's what CNN is telling you. That's what Don Lemon is telling you. Here we go. People who are not getting vaccines, who are believing the lies on the Internet instead of science, it's time to start shaming them. What else? Or leave them behind. I wish you would. I wish you would. Um, <clears throat> okay, so people who believe stories on the Internet rather than the science. So that's what we call appeal to authority. And uh, Don Lemon is suggesting that the science is settled, that there is an authority that says uh, about the vaccines, let's say, that anybody who would refuse to get them is, um, well, legitimately dumb because there's an authority who's already told you it's, it's, it's the best thing to do. You're not doing it for, for what? For what reason? The authorities told you it's right. So what are you arguing about? What, you have a mind of your own? What's that? Be- because they are keeping the majority of Americans behind. You didn't feel that way about the polio vaccine. You don't feel that way about measles, mumps, rubella when it comes to your children. Okay, so that's a red herring. That's a diversionary tactic. So he's saying here that, well, you didn't mind getting your kids vaccinated for rubella. You didn't mind getting them vaccinated for polio, but you don't want to get them vaccinated for this. Why? Because because you're making a political point. How dare you? Your kids are going to get sick and die. Other people are going to get sick and die because of this. Really? 
Is it, is it, a, is it it's a false equivalency, actually. It's a red herring and a false equivalency. We're talking about a novel mRNA vaccine. We're not talking about the same kind of vaccine as polio. We're not, we're not, we're not. And it doesn't have a long, long-term test history, so we have no idea what the long-term consequences will be, especially with children. Okay, here we go. All of a sudden, this vaccine is different. What, what's different about it? The only different thing... It's an mRNA vaccine, Don Lemon. That's what's different about it. ...about it is because of your politics today. The- my, my politics today and that it's an mRNA vaccine, novel mRNA vaccine to deal with the spike protein, not like any other vaccine, but go ahead. The people talk about, well, I don't know what's in the shot, Chris. I don't know what's in that shot. I'll tell you what's not in it. Hold on. A tracking device. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me. So if you have, if you're one of those people that has a legitimate concern about what's in this vaccine, because it is a novel type of vaccine that's never existed before, and it hasn't been tested as long as it, as it would have, if this wasn't a, a national pandemic. Um, yeah. Okay. Let me finish this. You know, what's you know what they, they get shots in nowadays and their rear ends, they're getting shots to make it bigger. They're getting. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so he just made a weird allusion to getting a shot in your rear end to make it bigger. By it, I think he means your penis. So what he's suggesting is there's a bunch of small penis conservative people willing to put a a needle up their butt to have a bigger dick and won't get a vaccine to save the world. Does that seem like a legitimate, uh, reasonable thing to say, Don Lemon from CNN, you motherfuck? Shots in their face. They don't know what's in Botox. They don't know what's in uh, the stuff. Nothing wrong with Botox. People tried don't it. know what they eat, Look, what they drink, what they smoke. I tried it once. Smoke. My eyebrow went up. I don't have it now. As you can see, I got... People don't know what they eat, what they smoke. Okay, so that's diversionary. Yep, that's diversionary. That'd be a red herring. Uh, it's also an appeal to ignorance and an appeal to emotion, right? Because we, we're, not all, we're not all vaccine experts. We don't know uh, any of these facts without looking them up and going through a lot of work to, to, to vet it out. But you got this authority on the, on the television, Don Lemon and some other schmo, t- telling, you, telling you what's right and what's up. So you've got all kinds of things. You've got an appeal to authority. You've got a false equivalency. You've got a red herring and a straw man all going on. And we are only one minute in. All these wrinkles. Everybody asks me when I'm going to get you get you need Botox. But listen, nothing wrong with Botox. Clearly. But I'm saying, do people really know what's in stuff that they inject in their bodies all the time? And they're what like, they oh, eat? They what they what drink? they eat, what they drink, all the stop it. Son of a bitch. We, we don't know what's in everything we eat and we drink. So that means so that means we shouldn't be concerned about what's in a novel new vaccine. OK, that's a red herring if I've ever smelled one. Stop it with the ignorance. And we have to stop saying, oh, well, you know, you have to listen to people. And uh, the, no, you don't. These people are being harmful to the greater good. You don't have to listen to a minority of people who are being. You don't have to listen to a minority of people that are harming the greater good. That's what Don Lemon just said. Black man on TV saying you don't have to listen to the minority opinion. That seems really fucking hypocritical and awful. Um, especially if what they're doing harms the greater good. And who gets to decide what the greater good is in this case? It's Don Lemon and the authority that he appeals to.
harmful to the greater good and who are not acting on logic, reason, and science. I had, the, I had an issue. I told That's an ad hominem, by the way, because we're not responding to logic, reason, or science. So we're a bunch of dummies over here. And so uh, we can just attack the man then. So our arguments, the reason why somebody may have an objection to the vaccine or a question about the vaccine, God forbid, um, that, that, that all that stuff is just dismissed. It was under the, under, the, under the rug, right? Because we can attack the man. <clears throat> uh, ad hominem, or we can simplify all that into a straw man. We'll attack that man too. You, Chris, when my family was here and they were saying, "Well, I don't know," I just, I, don't know. I said, "You know how you got here to visit me in New York? You took an airplane. What is that? Science, right? You know why people live to be older than forty, fifty, sixty years old these days? Science, medicine." No one questions that. You know why people, it, you know what, what is so contradictory about it? When people get sick, they go into the hospital and they say, throw it all, give it to me, inject it, put it in me. And you're going to pay a whole lot of money and you're going to tax the medical system when you could have gotten it for free and you wouldn't be in that position in the first you're place. You're going to question the facts. You could have gotten it for free. Let me ask you, Don, is, is anything free? Is anything free, Don? This vaccine that we had to... He had to push through really quick so we could get uh, we start using it and save lives. Cost a lot of pharmaceutical companies a lot of money, man. I, I'm probably in the tens of billions, probably in the hundreds of billions, actually. And it wasn't just one pharmaceutical company. It was at least three or four of them. And uh, we're going to get that for free, you say? For free. It doesn't cost anybody anything? Hmm, man, something about that doesn't sound right but you want to take a horse dewormer. Um, but look, here's the thing. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't get the vaccine, but you dummy, you're going to get it. You're not going to take the vaccine, but you're going to take a horse dewormer. So that also is a red herring, another one. I mean, we just we could literally uh, stockpile a fishmonger with all the red herring that, uh, that Don Lemon and his fucking buddy are spouting right now. Um, so... Uh, he's re referring to ivermectin, calling it a uh, a horse dewormer because it's used as an antiparasitic. But you're gonna dive, you're gonna you're gonna create a diversion here. So we're not gonna talk about the vaccine. We're instead, instead we're gonna talk about this other treatment that is related, but but we're not talking about the same thing here. And we're going to call it a horse dewormer instead of what it is, an antiparasitical uh, 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 medicine. That's that's got a long history of use in human beings. It's not an animal medicine. But we're just going to laugh, right? Ha, ha, ha. We're going to laugh so the audience agrees. And it's also an appeal to ignorance here because if I don't know any of the history there behind ivermectin or, or any of that, it, and I'm too embarrassed to ask or to look it up, it's just easier for me to agree that the man laughing like it's funny must know what he's talking about. So I'm going to laugh right along with him and pretend like I'm smart too. I, I accept uh, everything you've just said. Most of all, the idea that the majority cannot be healed by the tyranny of a minority. Yeah. Uh, they're stubborn. Okay, that's enough of that, you guys. So what do you think? What do you think? What do you think of the power of argument? What do you think about your, your own susceptibility to this sort of manipulation? You know, it's weird. It's weird because it's, because it's ordinary. It's weird because it's everywhere. It's not just politics. It's the way parents manipulate their kids by telling them about the boogeyman, you know, to, to behave. The way advertisers are manipulating you to get you to buy a product or to think you want a product. Um, it's, it's the way the politicians talk. It's the way the sophists and the attorneys speak when they're making their opening and closing arguments. Um, it's manipulation. And, uh, and the, cri the critical thing to understand here, guys, is that we, s we seem to prefer that.
it's easier. It's easier. If I'm, if I'm convinced by an argument, sufficiently convinced by an argument, what does that, what does that do for me? It relieves me of the need to, to research any of it. It relieves me of the need to make my own opinion. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. And to do well, it's even harder. It's much easier for me just to, just to borrow somebody else's uh, ideas, uh, regardless of how well, well thought out they might be, because it saves me time. You know, and it, it, there's an evolutionary reason for that. Because there was a time when human beings didn't have the luxury of sitting down and thinking things through. They had to go with their gut. You know, there was a time in, in our history when it was life and death. To go with your gut was life and death. And sometimes that meant you had to pick up on cues in nature. You had to pick up on social cues to know who's dangerous, to know what's lurking, to know where the opportunities might be found. And we had to go with our gut because if we didn't act, uh, you know, quickly, we would die or we'd miss out. So there's something built into us that predisposes us to be manipulated. It's easier for us to just look up to the leader, look up to the authority, and go with what the smart person is doing. It's much more difficult to think for ourselves. And we get too trusting. We get way, way too trusting. All of these authorities and these people that, uh, that we think um, you know, we can rely on, we should be skeptical of them all, even mom and dad, even God himself. And anytime we give up that responsibility that we have to do the hard thing, to make our own decisions, anytime we offload that onto somebody else, we take a risk. Think about that. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode